Welcome to More Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker, and this is the program where we explore the fullness of the Christian faith in the Catholic Church. Every week we have a different guest. Sometimes it's an architect or a writer, a blogger. Today my guest is Professor Devin Brown. He is the Lilly Scholar and Professor of English at Asbury University in Kentucky. He is an expert on C.S. Lewis and also J.R. Tolkien. Welcome to More Christianity, Dr. Brown. Father, it's so great to be here. Thank you so much. I see that you've a great expert in C.S. Lewis. You actually spent time living in Oxford and studying there, and it says that uh, you were the scholar-in-residence at the Kilns, the Oxford home of C.S. Lewis. What was it like living in the same house where C.S. Lewis spent so many of his years? Well, I'm sure you've got lots of C.S. Lewis fans out there. He's got fans everywhere. So, as you might guess, it was, like, ridiculously good. Uh, I think it was the one thing I've done that really impressed my mom. <laughs> so, yeah, I got invited to teach a class at Lewis's home, we met there for a week, ate in his dining room. I taught a class in the library. We had conversations till late at night in his common rooms. And then we slept in the bedrooms at night. And, well, I slept in his bedroom. So, yeah, it was really it was nuts. It was great. We all have leaders in the faith that have meant so much to us. And to be able to spend time at his house, in his room, well, it was like a dream come true. So The house itself isn't actually very big, is it? Well, no. I mean, it's kind of rambling. And, and I think maybe in its time it was kind of big. But no, it's not particularly big. Um, the Kilns is located just outside of Oxford, and uh, people can visit it today. And I, I bet you there are a number of people listening who have been to Oxford and may have, maybe have gone or who will go to Oxford. The C.S. Lewis Foundation bought the Kilns back in the 70s or 80s, and they've kind of fixed it back up. And so it's open for tours by appointment because it is in kind of a residential neighborhood, so it's kind of rambling. People come some have this mistaken opinion that it's this huge house. They get that because in the Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, you know, the professor has this giant house that the four Pevensies go to visit, and it's got rooms upon rooms. One has a suit of armor in it, and one is all books, and then, of course, one is empty except for that mysterious wardrobe. Well, the kiln isn't quite so big, but, but for its time, it was quite big. Uh, we had 15 people stay there for our seminar, and I'll just say this. There is a wardrobe there. You know, I'm not saying it's the wardrobe. There is a wardrobe there that you can go see. So make sure that nobody steps into that wardrobe with the uh, misunderstanding that they might end up in Narnia when, in fact, they get locked in there and and they miss their supper. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you don't want to shut the door behind you like Lewis tells us over and over in his books. But yeah, (laughs) I think you'd be surprised how many people have tried it, you know, when you thought nobody was looking, just in case. Whenever I read that detail in the Chronicles of Narnia, when he tells the children they go into a wardrobe and then he adds, but make sure you don't try this at home. I I have the idea of some editor sitting somewhere and saying, oh, he can't say that. We're going to get sued because children get locked into wardrobes. Yeah, yeah, some editor slash lawyer, right? So some lawyer at at Jeffrey Blackman. (laughs) came HarperCollins thinks, okay, when we have kids start playing Narnia, they're all going to get locked in here and they're going to sue us. So yeah, he has to repeat a bajillion times, don't shut it, don't shut it, don't shut it. And then in later stories, he makes sure they go through Narnia through something more harmless, like a picture on the wall. That's a good point. In order to have him go through something more dangerous, like jumping in in the refrigerator or something, right? (laughs) That's right. I remember (laughs) trying to write a children's story, a Narnia-like children's story one time, and they went into the alternative world by falling out of a tree. And I thought, no, that's probably not going to work. So, Devin, you are an acknowledged uh, English scholar and uh, teacher of C.S. Lewis and and J.R. Tolkien. Tell me, in your youth, were you struck with a serious illness like I was, an illness called anglophilia? Well, that's a very good question. I'll tell you how I came at it, and and I'll just say this. At Asbury, where I teach, everybody knows Lewis and Tolkien. They come here knowing Lewis and Tolkien. Their parents have read the Chronicles of Narnia to them. They've all seen Lord of the Rings. But, you know, when I was younger, and probably I'm, I'm roughly your age, it wasn't quite that way. People didn't know Lewis and Tolkien like they do today, probably because of the movies. And 
where I grew up, south side of Chicago, very blue-collar, working-class part of town. Nobody knew Lewis, nobody knew Tolkien. The church I went to wasn't big on books. So yeah, I didn't discover either of these guys until a little bit later in life. My older brother, first in our family to go to college, goes off to college. I'm uh, 16 years old, a sophomore in high school. He comes home around Thanksgiving, like older brothers do. If you have one, you know what I'm talking about. Throws a book on my bed, says, here, you should read that. Well, being the obedient younger brother, I picked it up and read it. And it was this real strange book I'd never heard of called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by this other person I'd never heard of, C.S. Lewis. And, you know, I thought it was great. I didn't think I'd ever heard a book like that before. There's no internet back then, right? So I went to this thing called the library, and I asked the library, you know, is there any other books by this guy, C.S. Lewis? Well, to my joy, you know, she says, yeah, there's six more in the series, and when you finish that, there's a space trilogy, there's a great divorce, there's all these other kind of books like Mere Christianity and The Problem of Pain and Miracles. That's not to even talk about the English side of things. I was introduced to the world of ideas through C.S. Lewis, to the, to the world outside of the South Side of Chicago through C.S. Lewis, and like you, the world of England. I know your story. You ended up going over there, and, and trust me, I didn't go until I was in my 30s because nobody from my family, we didn't, we didn't leave our time zone, right? <laughs> and I finally went, and now I've been, well, I don't know how many times, and it just seems odd to say it, doesn't it? So you're still afflicted with this serious illness. For the listeners who aren't aware, Anglophilia is the love of all things English. My story is similar to yours. I went off to Bob Jones University after high school in the 1970s, and that's where I was introduced to not only C.S. Lewis, but T.S. Eliot and and J.R.R. Tolkien and all these great English writers. And I can remember while I was there in this very fundamentalist Baptist kind of uh, environment, thinking one day, hey, these guys are great Christian writers, but why aren't they Southern Baptists? And this is not to knock any Southern Baptists, you know, not at all. I, I value their tradition, but I came up with the conclusion that they were something weird called Anglican, except for J.R. <laughs> Tolkien, who was a Catholic, and he must have made a mistake there somewhere. So there was this thing about Anglicanism, and I traveled over to Europe on a couple of mission trips, and I came back from one of them after visiting England, saying to my mom, I'm going to live over there one day. And sure enough, it happened. I had the chance to go and study at Oxford for three years, train as an Anglican priest, and then to stay in what I now call the damp lands and uh, to stay there for 25 years and loved it, loved England and loved C.S. Lewis and all that great English heritage. Now, Devin, tell me a little bit then how this introduction to C.S. Lewis led you into a, a life of scholarship. Yeah, so, you know, not only did he introduce me to the Christian imagination, he also introduced me to the proper use of Christian reason. And, you know, I think in some ways your your and my background is kind of similar. My church was full of really wonderful, godly people. That verse where, you know, thou shalt love the Lord with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind and all thy strength, they were really big on the first one and not so much on the rest, Mm -hmm. right? And so just like all young people, I had questions. And I had trouble getting answers. And, And matter of fact, there were times where I was made to feel like asking questions. Well, why are you asking so many questions? What do you have these doubts about? C.S. Lewis is someone who encourages us to ask questions, serious questions, and to get serious answers for our faith, and not some sort of glib, trite, easy answer. One you can understand, right? It's not so convoluted and so erudite that no one can understand it, but yeah, serious answers to serious questions, and the idea that asking questions is a great thing. It's how you come to, to grow and understand your faith a little bit better. So I've been thinking a lot about this idea of turning toward Lewis, and your turn as well, You know, what made us turn in such a hard way toward those other things? Well, the church that I grew up in was was very non-denominational. And for your listeners who might not be familiar, that sort of means that they don't really have any tradition. They sort of try to jump over everything all the way back to the New Testament. And while the New Testament's a great place to go, 
all of those riches that came in between, I don't know, the first century and the 20th century, they disregard. They don't read the church fathers. They don't talk about the liturgical year. They don't have any of those kind of things that makes our faith so rich. And that was part of the appeal that drew me to Lewis and this idea of, of these people who came before, because they're all of ours, right? And we don't have to ignore them. We need to embrace those guys. So those are our people. That's exactly the thing that Lewis gave to me as well. There I was in Oxford, the home of C.S. Lewis, training to be an Anglican priest. Coming from a fundamentalist evangelical background, I'd been trained to be very suspicious of the people we called the liberals, uh, you know, the people who were out there as the big bad guys. And Lewis was able to introduce me, as you've said, to a, a faith that was historical, which was yep. intelligent, which was well-expressed, which had the answers both for the fundamentalist obscurantists, and by that I mean the fundamentalists who kind of said, you know, we want to be dumb on purpose, and the intellectual liberals who were just being cynical about the Christian faith. And there was Lewis who was saying, you know, this historic faith, this faith of the ages is exciting and alive today. He wrote with great humor. He wrote with great intelligence and wit and learning. And in many ways, he saved my faith. And I think because he was a a way that I could move forward into a thoughtful, intelligent Christian faith in a way which was refreshing and, and creative and imaginative. I'm talking today to Devin Brown. He's a C.S. Lewis scholar. He's contributed to numerous works about uh, Lewis, his life, his works, his legacy. Uh, Devin, your most recent book is A Life Observed, a spiritual biography of C.S. Lewis. Now, I've read all of Lewis's works and a good number of biographies about him. I have to say, your book really pegged it. You understood Lewis's spiritual journey underneath all the rest of the biographical elements, and you brought out a dimension there that I don't think any of the other biographers have quite focused on, despite all the shelves full of books about Lewis. Congratulations for shedding some light on on some areas that were never put together in quite the same way. How, How has the reception of your book been? Well, first off, thank you. You're, you're very kind. And, and I'll, I will say this, the reception has been good from people who get this kind of thing. I don't know how many, if you count them all up, how many biographies of Lewis have been written, but there's like a half a dozen really kind of well-known good ones, right? And you have them on your shelf, I have them on my shelf. And there's this idea that if you're a biographer, that you're supposed to hold your subject at sort of arm's length and, you know, not, not embrace them and not be too excited about them because you're supposed to be this objective scholarly kind of person and the last thing you want to be accused of uh, is of being too enthusiastic about your subject. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not going to write that kind of biography. That, you know, I want to say, hey, here's a guy who's meant a lot to me and I'm really excited about him and I continue to read him and be inspired by him and learn new things and I think you should too. And, and that was my stance. I sort of embraced him as tight as I could. And I'll just tell you an interesting story. So here I'm in Lexington, Kentucky, and I've written this biography. And, and let's be honest, it's nuts. Why in the world should a guy in Lexington, Kentucky, write a new biography of C.S. Lewis? There's one by Walter Hooper, his personal secretary. There's one by George Sayer, who was his student and later his friend. There's one by Alistair McGrath, who kind of followed in Lewis's footsteps, grew up in Belfast, and went to Oxford, where he was a professor. How does this guy at Asbury University in Lexington get off writing a new biography of Lewis? What's he got that's going to be new? And what I thought was, well, you know what's really interested me the most is not who Lewis's great-grandfather was and where he lived and what he did for a living, was, you know, Lewis's path of faith, which is our path of faith, his journey toward, toward belief and, and further belief and deeper belief, right? And that's all of our stories. And, and I, I thought, you know, it hasn't been told with depth and brought to life and, and the kind of connections made between his apologetic works and his fictional works and his biographical works. So that's what I set out to do, and I'll just say this. So, so I finished that book, I don't know, a couple of springs ago, and I'm sitting here, like I say, in Lexington, Kentucky, thinking, okay, I got this book, now where is it going to go? 
So I wrote Douglas Gresham, who's C.S. Lewis's stepson, if some of your listeners don't know. He's the little boy in Shadowlands. He's been the executive producer of the Narnia films. And, and you know you're in trouble, Father, when you start out an email. Dear Mr. Gresham, you won't remember me, but. <laughs> <laughs> you won't remember me, but we were at a conference together. We were on a panel together, and I've written this biography of Lewis, and I'd love to have a foreword from you because it would mean a lot, I know. And he writes back, Dear Mr. Brown, thank you for your email. I usually don't write forwards, especially to biographies, because it seems like we're authorizing them. And, you know, and I said, you know, Dear Mr. Gresham, I understand, but. And I made the case. It answered long when it answered your question. I made the case that I don't think people have really focused on what was most important to them. And I find some of the biographies not positive enough. You know, some biographies are sort of warts and all, and then some biographies are warts and imagined warts, possible warts, you know, theoretical <laughs> yeah, exactly. warts. And I don't know, my Lewis friends aren't interested in that stuff at all. So anyway, I stuck to what I, I knew, and I tried to keep the spotlight on Lewis, not on me and what I'd discovered. And anyway, in the end, Douglas Gresham wrote a very generous forward. It came across very well. I was reminded also, actually, that Walter Hooper, who was C.S. Lewis's secretary in his last few months of his life and, and his editor, he's from Kentucky, isn't he? So, um, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Walter wrote a very nice endorsement, and I, I met him when I was at the kiln tour that week. Uh, he came out. We, there's a banquet that concludes that seminar that the C.S. Lewis Foundation puts on. and So he came out, and I met him then. We had a lovely talk. And so, again, I had another one of those. Dear Mr. Hooper, you probably won't remember me, but... And interestingly enough, I'll just tell you an interesting Walter Hooper story. He wrote back, and he, he said, no, you and I met on this date. You gave me a book that you'd written about Narnia. He's got a diary of every day since he met C.S. Lewis. And I said, you know, you've got to publish that in your lifetime because... The stories he could tell about books by Lewis that almost didn't happen and books that were about to go out of print. Everyone takes the C.S. Lewis book phenomena for granted now, right? You can go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble or your local Christian bookstore and find a whole shelf of Lewis books. Well, if Walter Hooper hadn't kept the light burning on some of them, they, the light might have gone out. Anyway, yeah, he, and he gave me an endorsement, and I was very grateful for that. Because he and Green wrote the first biography of Lewis, and that's the one a lot of people started with. I met Walter a couple of times myself over there uh, while I lived in England, and he's always very generous and kind and always willing to help anybody who's trying to promote the work of C.S. Lewis. The story I like about Lewis is in his later years, apparently he, he confided in um, Walter Hooper or one of his friends that he was really upset and sad because he knew he was dying and there wouldn't be any money left for his brother, Warney, who was um, yeah. dependent on him and on his stepsons, David and yeah. Douglas Gresham, because he was convinced that his works would go out of print and uh, they would be penniless. And here, 50 years later, his love story is the stuff of a Hollywood feature film and, and the Chronicles of Narnia are being cranked out worldwide as wonderful movies yeah. and his books continue to go on and sell and sell as classics. What a mark of the humility of the man that he really genuinely thought on his deathbed that all of his works would go out of print yeah. and be remaindered and, and ground up into pulp, and who would ever remember C.S. Lewis? Well, he said, five years after I'm gone, no one will be reading it. Well, you know, people ask if Lewis was ever wrong, in my opinion. I'll go, well, yeah, a number of times, and, and that would be like one of the biggest. He that's... was absolutely wrong about that. Uh, and you asked me, by the way, about Walter Hooper coming from Lexington. Yeah, that's, it's been an interesting story. He was from North Carolina originally, but he came to the University of Kentucky to do his master's degree in English, and it was from here he went over to see Lewis that summer, in 63, the last summer that Lewis was on Earth, and they met, and uh, he helped him out and worked that summer. With the arrangement, he had to come back and teach 
one more semester at UK here, and then he was going to go in January. And, of course, he was here, and it's 50 years ago, this fall, of course, mm-hmm. when he got a phone call from Douglas Gresham telling him that, that Jack, as they called him, had passed away. So he went back not to be Lewis's secretary, but to be the executor of Lewis's literary estate. Mm-hmm. He went on to, you know, produce, you know, all sorts of things. The, the first single volume of letters, more recently, the three volumes of letters, lots of collections. And in fact, a, a, a collection just came out this fall of Lewis's uh, literary essays. So yeah, Walter's a great guy. And, you know, I went to the church where he attended while he was here, Church of the Good Shepherd, and did a talk on Lewis. And I had a couple of people come up who had known Walter when mm-hmm. he was here. I'm talking to Devin Brown. Dr. Brown is a professor of English at Asbury University in Kentucky. He's a well-known C.S. Lewis scholar. He's written a number of books, contributed to a good number of other books on C.S. Lewis and C.S. Lewis scholarship. His latest book is A Life Observed, a spiritual biography of C.S. Lewis. He's my guest here at More Christianity this week. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. I encourage you to go to my website, dwightlongenecker.com, is where you can be in touch. You can browse my books. You can jump over to my blog, Standing on My Head, where we very often talk about Lewis, Tolkien, the Inklings, things English, things American, so that you can learn more and follow my work there. Dr. Brown, to talk about C.S. Lewis a bit further, one of the interesting things in your book, A Spiritual Biography of C.S. Lewis, A Life Observed, is his spiritual journey. He's coming from a Protestant background in Northern Ireland, which is pretty complicated. The relationship between Protestants and Catholics in Ireland is is fraught with difficulties and and complexities. He's taught by his father to never trust a papist, to never trust a Catholic. (laughs) He comes to England to study as a schoolboy, then he's admitted into Oxford, has this wonderful academic career. And he famously becomes a Christian through the ministry of a Catholic, J.R. Tolkien, and also uh, another Catholic, I believe, Hugo Dyson, who had this famous conversation with him as they were walking in Addison's Walk outside Magdalen College in Oxford. And it was a conversation which was very crucial because they were talking about myth and the relationship of myth to truth and the relationship of truthful myth to Christianity. Can you talk to our listeners about that a little bit more? Yeah, and I'll say this. We mentioned earlier, if people go to Oxford, they sure want to go and visit the kilns. They also want to go to the college where Lewis was a professor, Magdalen College. We would say Magdalen, but don't say Magdalen. They'll look at you like, Magdalen? We don't have a Magdalen. Oh, Magdalen, you know, named after Mary Magdalene in the Bible. Anyway, Magdalen College where he taught. And then right next to it is this lovely walk that Joseph Addison used to stroll on apparently 100 or 200 years before Lewis was there. And you can still stroll there today. And you can think back to this autumn night where Tolkien, Dyson, and Lewis all had dinner, and then they walked round and round on this fall night, and the the wind was blowing high in the trees. And Tolkien got to talking to Lewis about how he was very moved by this story of the dying god in mythology. Their their first interest, where they became friends, was mythology, of course. Norse mythology, Icelandic mythology. They were were first in the coal biters first, and then in the inklings. And he says, you know, Jack, you, you love that story of the dying God when you, when you meet it in Norse mythology or, or anybody's story. Why, why are you so opposed to it in Christianity? He says, you like that story. Just think of this as a myth that actually happened. And for some reason, that was the thing that had been stopping Lewis. And I'll just say this. People come to faith in different ways. And anybody who wants to make it overly simplistic, I think, man, you haven't talked to many people. So Lewis has this moment where he's walking around Addison Walk, where he opens himself up to the idea of, of Christ being God's son. 
because of this discussion of myth. And, and if you read his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he says the last piece fell into place. He went with his brother, Warney, to Whipsnade Zoo in a motorcycle. And back then, you know, gas was rationed and they didn't have much money. So he's riding in a sidecar. So if you want to have a spiritual experience like Lewis, go with your brother to the zoo and ride in the sidecar. He says, when I left, I didn't believe that Jesus was God's son. And when I got there, I did. So for him, it was a gradual thing. I know some people you know, can point to the moment in time where they became a Christian. Lewis can point to the months and years over which he gradually first became a theist and then became a Christian. And then someone said about him later, C.S. Lewis was probably the most converted man he'd ever met. That's Walter Hooper. So Walter Hooper goes to meet him Mm -hmm. and lives with him and sees that he doesn't just talk the talk. He really walks the walk. He really tries to live out his faith. And, um, Douglas Gresham just came to Asbury to, to speak after my book came out, and he offered his recollection, and he, he offered example after example of Lewis, signs of compassion, signs of humility, signs of self-introspection. Am I really doing what I say I do? He was very careful to say, what's the point of writing all these books if I don't integrate my faith and my living, not just faith and learning, but faith and living. So it's a Catholic, a very devoted Catholic, J.R. Tolkien and Hugo Dyson, who also took their faith very seriously, who were instrumental in C.S. Lewis's conversion to Christianity. C.S. Lewis chose to worship in his college chapel at Magdalen and in his local parish church in Headington, but he never took that step to the Catholic faith. Why is that, do you think? There's been quite a bit written about that for people who are interested. Joseph Pierce wrote a whole book on C.S. Lewis and the Catholic faith and did a great job exploring options. You know, before we take a step further, C.S. Lewis was very open to the Catholic faith, very accepting. I mean, here's a guy raised in Belfast, Northern Ireland, where Catholics and Protestants hate each other. They're at each other, shooting each other. And we, we still have some of that same old animosity that lives on today. And his closest friend is Roman Catholic, right? And he's an Anglican, these people who are at each other's throats back in Northern Ireland. So, so he, there, there was no anti-Catholicness in him that I could find. What I would say is this, is Lewis, when he decided, for whatever reason, that the, the, the room, and he, he talks in Mere Christianity about this hall, this great hall of Christianity, and he said, you know, you come into this great hall, you may decide to become a Christian. He said, but you've you got to live in one of the rooms. You know, you're going to go to church somewhere, and you've got to go to Methodist church or Lutheran church or Roman Catholic church or Anglican. And he says, right up in the very front, he says, you're not going to hear from me which one of these you should go to. He says, I don't like the divisions in our faith. I'm not proud of them. I'm not happy with them. This dividedness among Christians is not a good thing. And remember what he's talking about where your faith was more politics that he was raised in back home and full of hatred and violence. So he knows what he's talking about when he's talking about the divisions that have sprung up among Christians. You could read every word he wrote, and he wrote a lot of words, and you'll find almost virtually nothing about why he decided to be an Anglican and not of this and not of that. Because his point is, and I'm not telling you which one to be, I'm not telling you which one is better. I'm talking about the mere Christianity that all of us share, the things that all Christians at all times have believed in, And he felt that was his gift to talk about that. You know, maybe other people want to talk about why you might go into one room or the other. And he says at some point you're going to have to pick a room one over the other. But he said that's not where he's going. And part of it is he didn't want to go down that path of why one might be better than the other. He definitely uh, had a very interesting concept of purgatory, of some sort of place after death. And that appears again and again. Very Catholic idea, not quite aligned perfectly with the Catholic idea, but pretty much. And then he also had an idea of praying for the dead. So it's hard putting him in a box, let's put it that way. He obviously felt very comfortable with Catholics. 
I'm talking to Dr. Devin Brown, a C.S. Lewis scholar who teaches at Asbury University in Kentucky. Devin, also, being an Anglican in the 1950s and 1960s, he would have been very close to an awful lot of what we would recognize as the historic Catholic faith. And so he, I think, like a lot of members of the Church of England, especially at that time, would have said, well, I'm a Catholic, but in the Anglican Church. Now, for Catholics, that doesn't compute, but <laughs> but for a lot of Anglicans, that does make a lot of sense. In many ways, their own experience is what they would say is the historic Catholic Church in England, but it's within yeah. the Church of England. So that's understandable to me, especially as I was an Anglican priest myself for, for 10 years, and I understand right. that argument, and I can, I can sympathize with it. I can see where he is. I'm going to pick you up a little bit. You know, you mentioned mere Christianity and his idea that there is a hall and the side rooms. You, you come into Christianity, you're in the hall. The side rooms are like the different denominations. You have to pick one door to go through. One of my early books is called More Christianity, which is a deliberate pun on his work, and it's a, an exploration of the Catholic faith for evangelical Christians. It's a friendly explanation saying, what you have is good, but there's more to it than that, thus the title. And in there, I actually pick up on that comment of Lewis's a little bit where he says, when you go into the side rooms, he says, you must not choose according to the furniture or the, or the wallpaper or the, yeah. or the paneling that you like. You must choose according to which one is most true. Now, he doesn't follow that logic home, because if there is one that's more true than the others, that means that there is a gradation, and they're not all equal. The point I'm making is that he did not actually believe that all of the different denominations were equally true. I'm talking today to uh, Dr. Devin Brown, who teaches English at Asbury University in Kentucky. He's the author of A Life Observed, a spiritual biography of C.S. Lewis. Our time is closing here. Dr. Brown, can you tell us the most important spiritual lesson that you think C.S. Lewis has for us today? Yeah, if I can fudge, I'll squeeze in two. The first one is he taught me about the, the sacramental ordinary that we live in, that life is full of holiness all around us. And the things that we see outside are not just a bunch of atoms and molecules. They've been made by our Creator, and they still bear His stamp, His holiness. Now, there are certain things that might be even extraordinarily holy in our life. Certainly, He believed in taking the Eucharist and other things, but just the ordinary things, the light, the trees, the bread, the tea, God made all those things, right? And there's still something of Him in those things. I mean, I think that's why we like to go to Narnia. There's something special about Narnia that isn't in our world, and then, hey, guess what? It is in our world. And, of course, the second thing... Lewis says this, he says, we as Christians need to laugh more. If Narnia was all grumpy and sad after the White Witch as, as much as before, well, there'd be something wrong. But no, they're romping. Celebration and merriment isn't just for holidays or birthdays. You know, it's for every day. And we need to have something that the world looks at and say, what, is, what do they have? I want that. Not what do they have? I don't want that. So yeah, Douglas Gresham said almost every other time when someone asked him a question when he was here, what about C.S. Lewis, don't we know? He says, you couldn't be around him for more than three minutes without laughing. And Christians, we know the answer, and the, the battle's already won, and we ought to be laughing more, especially me. <laughs> so, in other words, to take away from C.S. Lewis, all of us should be surprised by joy a little bit more. Yeah, surprised by it and embrace it, and look where it's pointing, because that's the ultimate reality. Well, thank you very much for joining me. This has been a wonderful conversation. Dr. Devin Brown, the author of A Life Observed, a spiritual biography of C.S. Lewis, teaches English at Asbury University in Kentucky. Learn more about his book over at Amazon.com or wherever else you can find it. It's a good read and a great gift. And don't forget also to check out my website, DwightLongenecker.com, where you can browse my books. You've been listening to More Christianity. Thank you, and join us again next week.